Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Consumers are changing. People think consumers are static. They're actually dynamic. They learn and they adapt. And just like you're saying, I don't need this cable box anymore. I don't need to spend 120 bucks on my cable bill every month. Screw these guys. There's a generation of people doing that. Tesla, Apple, online journalism, Hulk Hogan's buttocks, venture capital, risk-taking. We have it all this week in an action-packed episode with an angel of a guy. Full disclosure, stay with us. This week's show is brought to you by Confluence Coffee, the first craft coffee brewery, producers of nitro cold brew coffee in cans and kegs. I do love this stuff. You have to look for it. It's less acidic, less bitter, three times the caffeine of a normal cup, and pours like a stout beer. You don't even have to use that much milk or sugar on it. Confluence uses organic and fair trade ingredients and never adds sugar. Find their three flavors in Whole Foods, Mom's Organic Market, and Independence. And keep an eye out for Confluence's newest product hitting in November, a maple toasted coconut nitro cold brew. I wholeheartedly recommend it. I approach these guys because I love the product so much. And by Elwood Thompson's, rated the number one market in Virginia by MSN and the Daily Meal. My friends Rick and Molly Hood own the veritable foodie hub spot of Richmond, Virginia, at the corner of Elwood and Thompson since 1989 at the top of Carytown. Visit them. Indian Wednesdays, Sunday brunch, music, the beat. They got it all. ElwoodThompson's.com. Joining us from San Francisco's consistently shady and perhaps devolving Tenderloin District is angel investor Jason Kalkanis. He's CEO of Inside.com. He's been called a Silicon Valley triple threat, not unlike Gavin Belson. He invests, he starts up, and he he comments, he thinkfluences. How are you, sir? I am well. Thanks for having me on the pod. Well, you know I was going to start with this because this week you've been bombarded with press requests What with this news that Apple might be interested in McLaren, the Uber Lux sports car maker. And you made a prediction, was it February 2015, that I say that within 18 months, Apple's going to buy Tesla, the darling U.S. electric automaker, for a significant premium at what it's worth. And I, I think we're getting close to that deadline. What is it, October 2016 by then? Do you think it could still happen? I actually don't. I think the train has left the station. I think Apple should have. They had a window to buy Tesla, you know, for call it $20, $30 billion, $40 billion, maybe. Um, I think the shareholders probably would have held out for 50, 60, 70, and it would have been worth it for Apple because of how big transportation is as a category. But they done screwed up because they had a window, I think, to buy it. And and let's uh, be honest here, there's been multiple reports in the press about Google and Apple making a run at it. Um, So I'm not speaking just out of school or, you know, making this up. There's been mm-hmm. confirmed reports that people have um, approached Elon about it in the board, I guess. Or I think you just approached Elon in this case. And uh, it didn't happen. And then Elon decided to release the Model 3 and take deposits for it. And something happened that's never happened in the history of not only technology, but in the history of humanity, which is he ran a $12 billion Kickstarter uh, and Kickstarters had some whopping Kickstarters. If you look at the Pebble Watch, um, which was a smart watch long before the Apple Watch. Wait, that's yeah. an amazing point you just made right there, yeah. because I don't think many people have looked at it as such. Yeah. Effectively, you take a car, a hypothetical, a largely hypothetical car at this point, and you're taking pre-orders on it. Yep. And it's almost to telegraph to the world, how you like them apples, right? I don't need to go to the capital markets. I don't need to go and do a secondary offering, which a lot of people have been saying, look, you have a rich stock. You're worth more than all these different automakers. You're burning through cash. Why don't you take some cash off the table? You have this capital-intensive gigafactory, and and you're getting into all these moonshots. Instead, he goes out there, and he's like, I'm actually going to double down and take orders for this car. And what do you guys think? And you're phrasing this as an almost of a, gosh, the biggest Kickstarter ever. That is just brilliant, Mr. It, Jason Calcanis. But it is. If you think about it, you know, I, I own um, the 16th Roadster. And when we bought the Roadsters, we put up the full cost of the car, which was, you know, those first 100, what's called the Signature Series. He took full deposits, $140,000. A hundred of us did that. And, you know, that's um, $14 million right there. It's, it's not an insignificant sum of money for, at the time, a startup with probably, you know, dozens of employees at the time. And then he had the 
Model S, the four-door sedan. He took a 1,000 signature series. I have number one of that one, actually. Um, I was lucky enough to get the number one. And that was you know, a hundred and call it $125,000 car. Cause it was, if you bought the signature, you had to buy all the highest end stuff, right? You know, mm-hmm, it doesn't come mm-hmm. for free. So, Hey, you know, you start looking at that one, a thousand dollars times a hundred thousand dollars is a pretty big Kickstarter. This time he lowered the price. You know, it's going to be a $38,000 car. I'm going to guess on average, people spend $44,000 on it. And he got close to 400,000 orders instantly which equals $17.6 billion. If you take it at the $38,000 price, you can shave a little bit off there and get to $12 billion, $14 billion, whatever you think. Um, and then people, of course, criticized him, right? Nobody who's doing something wildly innovative like Elon is going to get out unscathed. The world reserves its most contempt for the people who are doing the most good to the world. Like Theranos, you know. I mean, they're, they're Yeah, we'll get there. Um, that's it's like two opposite end of the spectrum. One, person's, <laughs> one person is going to save you know, countless lives, millions, in fact, and the other person, you know, could wind up putting people in hospitals. I do want to get back to that famous story of of you guys having dinner when Tesla was rumored to have, what, a couple of weeks of runway left. A SpaceX rocket had exploded. Elon was really in, in between a rock and a hard place. And he did confide to you in the meantime that the Model S was close to development and was a great car. And you almost sight unseen wrote out a pair of $50,000 checks to him saying that, E looks like a great car. I'll take two. It's a true story. Um, and I, you listen, I would never tell the story if he hadn't told it himself. But, you know, he's since told exactly how close they were to the brink of disaster. And and he had to choose between this baby and the other baby and a, a potential nervous breakdown that he was having. What blows my mind. And you know, look, this is not an interview about Tesla, but I, I can't believe this happened. Right. You do it in the teeth of the worst economic crisis of our lifetimes, uh, bankruptcies left and right. If you're going to build a car maker from scratch, you might be a distressed investor and show up at the Midwest or buy some of these auto plants in the Rust Belt that are being idled. Instead, he takes over this, what, Pontiac Toyota factory in California, Fremont factory, and makes not just a car, like a doable car, like a Fisker or something like that, but maybe the most aspirational car in the United States. It breaks Consumer Reports records, right? He, he does this. He kind of bootstraps it out of left field. And I don't know what combination of luck or moxie or badassness you have to have to make something like that happen in a time like 2008, 2009, 2010. Yeah. You know, it's what I find with, you know, people who achieve greatness um, and success at that scale is people really start to project, you know, what that person is. You know, Steve Jobs is either, you know, a visionary and he just can walk on water or he's a complete utter a-hole, you know, like that horrible movie that was made about him, which is just, mm-hmm. you know, really one-sided and I thought just badly done. I love Fassbender, but it was just bad. And, you know, Elon, a lot of people are like, oh, the guy's a robot. Oh, the guy's a maniac. You know, everybody wants to sort of ascribe who people are without ever meeting them. I've known Elon for a decade or more and... You know, he's just a very hardworking, um, fun, funny, uh, hyper-intelligent, inspirational guy. And so at the end of the day, you know, I don't think he has the fear gene that a lot of us have of failure. So if you if you combine an incredibly hard work ethic with incredible intelligence and a lack of fear, you know, what do you get? I, I, you know, you get someone like Elon Musk. And I think, you know, he's... he's um, He's a very close friend, and he's very, um, you know, he takes the work very seriously, but he's also a fun guy, you know, and, and you can tell that when, you know, he did a Simpsons episode um, sure. uh, with a friend of mine, James Brooks, who's my friend James said, oh. Uh, I saw him washing dishes in a, what was it, a. a uh, yeah. Um, what was that? What's that sitcom on CBS? I, I don't I know don't the name Big of Bang it. Theory or yeah, something. Yeah, it's the nerd theory, the nerd yeah. show. Yeah, no, the so, nerd you know, show. He's got Elon a- Musk and everything, and it's it's just uh, it blows my mind that in a matter of a few years he's kind of come out of nowhere to materialize as our innovator in chief, especially after the passing of Steve Jobs. What I do want to get at is yeah. if you go through this dinner meeting and and uh, this initial purchase of the fateful you know Model One. Vehicle one. Do you wish that you had invested in him, sight unseen? Do you well, wish that you know maybe what? I had the opportunity said, Give to. Give me stock too. He, he had. I was going to invest that when it was one dollar a share, and I wound up investing right before the IPO. Um, and I, at the time, I just wasn't an angel investor. So when my friends started companies, I'd give them advice and I'd introduce them. So I, you know, I emailed Mark Cuban. I emailed a bunch of people. Hey, check it out. Elon's doing this interesting company. Um, but I just didn't consider myself an investor at that time. And having watched. 
Um, I passed on Tesla in that dollar a share round, Twitter in the $20, $20 million round, and Zynga in the $20 million round. But I was friends with you know Mark, Ev, and, and Elon, and still am, but I, I, I just didn't see myself as an angel investor. So after realizing, my God, my friends are really smart, they tend to do you know, important work in the world. Then I started angel investing and that's when famously, you know, I was at a party and I was leaving the party and Travis um, from Uber said, hey, can I show you what I'm working on? And before he even showed me, I said, can I invest? He said, of course. And I said, okay, great. He goes, do you want to see it? I said, yeah, of course I want to see it, but I'm, I'm just investing right now because I just, and I told them the story about the other companies. And that's how I became, you know, I think the third or fourth investor in Uber. Well, tell us more about that. We just had Alexandra Switch from The Economist on her cover story on, on Uber World. Yep. And we're discussing how unlikely that was. I mean, you know, right now, both as an, you know, an investor and a startup person, um, you, you mentioned it with Elon Musk, the kind of the audacity and fearlessness you need. But if I were creating the concept of Uber from scratch, or if I were pitching investors, I'd blow holes into that left and right. Like, you're going to run into all the taxi licensing commissions, labor unions. No way. I understand that the cell phone is universal and everybody yep. has a GPS handheld thing. But how in the world were you persuaded to immediately invest in this concept, which was so speculative? Well, that's the see, that's the difference between what I do um, and what people perceive I do. So people perceive I'm an evaluator of ideas, and I anoint certain ideas in certain markets, um, and that I understand where, you know, this company will scale, and I have some ability to see the future, and nothing could be further than the truth. In fact, you know, I don't even try to uh, understand what the future is necessarily. I try to understand people and their motivation for starting companies, and then I look at really how dogged and hardworking the person is, how much the idea matters to them, and how well they execute. So if you just think about that, you know, how much does this idea matter to Travis or Elon? It matters greatly. Um, and how well do those individuals execute? Well, if you just look at their history, they've executed extremely well. Um, and then if uh, you look at their execution, their early execution in the current products, um, you know, there were signs of excellence. Now, what most people do is, and this is why I don't take anybody's counsel when I write a check. I literally don't have any partners. I don't ask anybody, should I invest in this company? Because the list of reasons of why these businesses will not work greatly outweighs the list of reasons of why they will work. So I'm not concerned with why wouldn't it work? I'm concerned with what happens if things do align and if things do work out. Well, tell me what happened in that conversation with Uber founder Travis Kalanick. I mean, you had to conjure all this stuff up in your mind's eye. It's not like he pulled out a, a spreadsheet or slideshow or anything and made no, a formal pitch to but you. but I looked at the product and I said, I know Travis has done two companies. He, you know, his first company, Scour, he got sued for a quarter trillion dollars by the movie industry because he had created a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing service. I know File it, sharing service, right. File sharing service. It's like Napster, except you could put mm -hmm. uh, movies on it. So he, he basically literally got like, you know, all the movie studios to sue him uh, for a quarter million dollars each time somebody had downloaded specifically the movie The Last Action Hero. I remember that mm -hmm. that was like the movie that people had shared the most. A horrible movie. Um, anyway, he had, he had lived through that. He had lived through bad investors in that company. He did Red Swoosh, which taught him how to build a team, and he, which is essentially he did a peer-to-peer -peer content delivery service. So essentially it was like if you had on your computer Red Swoosh and I wanted to download a Netflix movie, it might take some of the content from Netflix and some of it from your computer. In other words, the peers would, you know, help pay for bandwidth costs. It, it did okay. He, he, made a, he made a little bit of money. I think the company sold for 30 or $40 million to Akamai. Um, but I just knew that he was dogged, hardworking, blue-collar. Um, and then when I looked at, so I, there was no question of if, if Travis would be successful in life. It would just be a matter of you know, how successful and on which company. And when you looked at the early product, I was like, wow, I remember, I always look for little signs, right? And so the little sign I saw there was, he was showing me, you know, two or three Lincoln Town cars moving around San Francisco. And the original idea was a little bit sort of like time sharing them, like we're gonna share these cars and, you know, you'll pay for them and maybe three of us will split one. It, it, was, it was certainly rough, but we had a long conversation about the fact that the, icon on the GPS of the car was facing um, essentially left when you're looking at your phone. And it would be going south on the map 
as if it was peeling out down the street, going sideways, burning rubber, right? Mm. So it was like jumping down the street. And he was like, look, we're going to figure out which icon to use and which way the car is facing. And we're going to tilt the car around. It'll be like an overview. So when it's going south, the car will actually look south. It's like, oh, okay. So that will create less cognitive dissonance because when I see it hopping up and down, it looks like it's layers, but that will actually look like the cars on the map. And that level of detail, when you have a great entrepreneur, they're thinking about that level of detail. Um, and so, you know, when I meet founders, I'm constantly just looking for what level of detail do they have? And with Elon, you know, and you look at the level of detail, he, he almost... When he delivered the Model X, which he's been derided a bit for because it took a little while and it's a very complex car, he added so many features that are so groundbreaking that it's absurd. It's almost like he took the next five generations of cars and released it as one. And I think he kind of tries to increase the level of difficulty for himself. In you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, when I was covering the, the company's meteoric rise, I guess, in early 2012, I believe I looked at some proxy statement that, that the company put out. And the board, uh, it seems like the board is somewhat sadistic and he's somewhat masochistic because these milestones that they put out there, like by year two, you will do this to get this portion of your bonus. By year four, you will change the world as such. By year 10, you will yeah. discover cold fusion. And, you know, I mean, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't believe it. I don't know what kind of person. He's clearly not in it for the money. He's in it for some sort of of, of rush of of changing stupid things uh, or he, you know, finding he's, efficiencies. He's had a vision for a pretty long time, you know, Mars and protecting this planet. And, you know, it's it's an energy company now. And that and that's back to your original question where we started this about Apple buying McLaren. Apple lost their opportunity, I think, their window to make a run at um, Tesla. I think if, you know, now they would easily, if they could go back in time, do it because... Apple's going to get really good at being a house of brands. They brought in Beats, and now mm -hmm. Beats is a product owned by Apple. And they have Beats One Radio, a product by Apple. Steve Jobs would have never allowed that. You know, if, if, if they didn't make it in their laboratory, it didn't exist. They would buy enabling technology companies, but they would never buy Instagram or WhatsApp well, why uh, can't or Apple YouTube. Well, why can do it still? You said $75 billion. No, is they, a, is they a can totally sweetener. do it. They just philosophically couldn't do it. They technically could do it, but philosophically, Steve Jobs would never allow anything made in another company to put the Apple logo on it. It had to be built by their people. It was just a Jason, philosophy. Let me, let me ask you this, though. For, for the sake of our listeners who don't yeah. know the, the jargon in the Valley, what is an aqua hire? So an aqua hire is when a company's product hasn't succeeded tremendously, but they have a really smart team that's got a lot of domain expertise, they'll get bought by a big company. And the company is buying them, they're acquiring them, Acqui, um, and they're hiring them. So they say, well, you've got 15 people working together on the thumbprint. So the thumbprint technology on your iPhone where you put your thumb on and it reads your fingerprint, that wasn't built at Apple. There was a company in Israel, I believe, that they bought. They're like, oh, they already have 15 people. We buy that company. Nobody knows the name of it. We put that in the iPhone. They would never buy the iPhone itself. They would never buy the Jambox. They would never buy Fitbit. They would never, they would launch their own watch. They would buy a team that was working on a Fitbit-like product and then failed, but had a smart team. And you can see that right now. They supposedly have hired a bunch of engineers from a company called Lit Motors, which is making a stand-up motorcycle, sort of like a Segway that stands up, can't which knock is it what, over. Which is what I want to ask you. Why yeah. reinvent the wheel? Apple is the largest company on the planet. I, disclosure, I own the shares. I've owned yep. them for a long time. Has a $230 billion cash hoard, much of it overseas but has no trouble issuing debt at very easy terms, has no trouble taking some of its U.S. cash hoard of, what, $30 billion, has a market cap, arguably an undervalued stock that it doesn't want to buy an overvalued stock with. But it's much easier for them to go out and kind of take out this expertise and this infrastructure yep. and that goodwill than kind of build it from scratch. Not according to Steve Jobs' ego, because he would never want that to happen. He'd rather build it himself and take his time and release less products, but release the best ones. However, Tim Cook is an operationally excellent person, right? He's going to make the trains run on time. He's going to, you know, not have too much inventory in any one location. So he's a master of the supply chain, a master of operations. That's why, you know, the trains uh, at, at Apple still continue to run on time and, and they keep releasing products. But he's not visionary, obviously. And they have not released many visionary products, you know, uh, in the last couple of years. And so now I think they're finally 
Steve Jobs is no longer with us, sadly. And now I think they're going to change their philosophy and run the Apple that they think they should run, not the one that Steve ran. And Steve said that. You have to run Apple as you see fit. He said that when he was uh, passing the baton before he died. It was in the Well, maybe the, the indication that we finally saw a stylus on the iPad Pro this year, which was verboten to Steve Jobs. I mean, precisely. Precisely. Unnatural, but I, was, I was more metamor, even though I have to spend $100 to get that on top of a $1,000 iPad. Yeah, I bought it and I don't use it. So, But you know, the thing is now, buying Beats was the signal. So they, they did a $2 billion acquisition. It was the largest one they've ever done for a headphone company. What they were really doing there was they were buying a demographic. They have no footing with, which is the urban demographic. They don't have the urban demographic. The urban demographic doesn't come into Apple stores. Largely, they buy Android phones because of price reasons, right? So buying Beats gets them access to that group. If they buy McLaren, it gets them access to a group of people who buy sports cars and a group of people who can build a car. And maybe they actually keep the McLaren name because it's so synonymous with performance and they have the Apple McLaren or the Apple McLaren one, whatever they call this car. So if they do wind up buying McLaren, which has a lot of material science behind it, they do a lot of carbon fiber stuff, they do a lot of other people's advanced technology. I believe they do the AMG uh, components for like Mercedes when they have those fancy right, AMGs. Right. So I think the acquisition talks are real. Very rarely have I seen these stories break about acquisitions when there wasn't something there. When you see them not happen, it usually means they just couldn't come to terms, but they did have discussions. Everybody talks all the time. Um, and there's multiple people who talk. Board members can talk without the CEO knowing. The CEOs can talk without the board knowing. All kinds of conversations occur when this M&A stuff is going on. So you could have the board deny it and the CEO deny it, but some mid-level person did it or some large hedge fund that owns a lot of Apple You could have Erlich Bachman go leak it somewhere. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's inside, insider yeah, stuff. Uh, yeah. We're talking to Jason Kalkanis, angel investor, serial entrepreneur. Uh, he's been pretty outspoken on Tesla, what Tesla should do, what Apple should do. We're going to talk about some of his media investments and uh, the state of the sector, which has been contracting by and large for almost 20 years now. But I do want to get it. Um, one last thing with the Apple car, if it's still called Project Titan. Look, I have one beef with the entire Apple ecosystem right now. And I'm someone, you know, when Business Week was acquired by Bloomberg in um, 2009, beginning of 2010, um, Josh Terangle, our editor, gave us all iMacs. And I never had an Apple product before that. I think going back to college, I didn't have one. And I was so blown away by um, the functionality, how it jibes with, um, you know, the photo application and uh, the Safari browser and whatnot and, and, and the quality of the screen. I mean, even pre-retina that I bought an iPod Touch and then I bought an iPhone. I bought an iPad. I bought a MacBook. Next thing you know, a few years later, I'm completely in that ecosystem. I have Apple Pay. My one longing, you know, I have an Apple TV. Uh, I'll, I'll sign up for the Apple Oral-B toothbrush when it comes out, <laughs> is I can't control my car. I can't control my hybrid car with it. Yeah. All I want is some sort of app, a software app, if Toyota and Apple can come to some sort of agreement where I can maybe turn on the AC while I'm leaving Starbucks or uh, turn on the car when it's buried sure. in snow and I'm trying to shovel it out. Is that a political thing? Is that these companies kind of want to own the the profitability? Because I'm sure the technology is already there. After all, like you said, you already see it on a Tesla. Yeah. You know, Apple tends to uh, simplify products and take the edge cases of control away from consumers for two reasons. One, as they publicly state, they want to make things simpler, more elegant, you know, um, have less crashes, that kind of stuff. The second reason really is if you control the ecosystem, you can do things like force people to buy ebooks, you know, and digital books through your iBooks channel as opposed to sure. through Amazon's, or you can block Amazon video or Amazon audiobooks and Audible. So like if you have the Audible app and the Audible app on an iPhone, you can't buy the books. You have to go right. to your web browser on no, your Amazon, phone, buy no, it. For another so example, dumb. Amazon, I can't get Amazon video on, Apple on my TV. Apple TV. So dumb. Right, so, if I could get a Roku, or I can't seem to get Spotify on my Apple TV. I'm in love with the Apple TV. It has product lust to it. I Netflix and chill with it. Uh, but I can't get, you know, I can't get that, that I'm there, right? The ecosystem is there, but it has asterisks all around the living room. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's always been there, you know, weird 
uh, kind of thing. So with the car, will the car be locked down and crazy? Well, you know, you kind of want a car locked down. You don't want to take too many risks with it. So I don't think it'll be as big of an issue for them. I do think that they're hopelessly behind um, and they're not going to make any kind of a compelling car and catch up to Tesla. Then hold that. Then hold that point, right? Yep. We know the auto industry is notoriously capital intensive. Yep. Has inventory issues. Has labor issues. Yep. Um, uh, it's open to shocks. I mean, even if you don't have the supply chain of of twenty companies, you know, going into a Chevy Tahoe, and if one has a strike or if one has a one is hit by a tornado or something, is if Apple or Tesla or whoever is a far simpler company, the margins just on having. And Apple owning this dashboard virtually, a software upgrade, have to be so much easier than the heavy lifting of starting a car company from scratch. So I understand their control issues. I understand they don't just want to be the software. They don't just want to be the hardware. They want to be the continuum of of experience. But at this point, Jason, they are so behind. And you saw the layoffs that they had in Project Titan. I mean, very rare news for this company to have to backpedal like this. And that's why when I step back, I wonder, if you are going to do it, why not just go and buy the company that's already at the forefront? They just can't buy Tesla. It's too late. They have what's called escape velocity in our industry, which is, you know, they're going to stay up in orbit. It's too late. So, you know, People uh, tried to buy Facebook. It got to a certain scale. Uh, people tried to buy Google. It got to a certain scale. It was just too late. So you really, if you want to take out these high-growth companies, you got to do it early. You got to do it when they're under ten billion dollars, or else that you know they have unlimited access to capital in today's world uh, and talent and. But markets. does he? Does he? Isn't this still a function of very generous capital markets? When I look at Tesla, thirty billion dollar market cap, still. Cash burn, still capital intensity. The gigafactory yeah. could really change the world. Now, Solar City is brought on. That's a thirty billion dollar market cap. If Apple were to show up tomorrow, and I'm not, I'm not quoting Elon here. I'm not, you know, using your information or anything. Yeah. And they say, okay, pal, we'll offer you some combination of cash and stock, and we'll we'll get close to the Calcanus number. Let's say seventy billion dollars. Do you yeah. think he would do it? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I don't actually know if he would do it or not. Um, and I don't know if the shareholders and, there would want him to. Another, but the let thing me throw is, another asterisk yeah, at you. Here we go. Yeah. Here we go. And the combined company in TK years, let's say seven years, you run the show, Elon. I think that's the interesting one. I think all shareholders would love to see Elon run a combined company. But you know, he's also got SpaceX, so it's it's a it's a little bit of a challenge. Um, I don't know that he wants to run all those companies. I think he wants to go to Mars most of all. So, you know, I I think the window has closed. I do think. There's a possibility, but I think it's very minor now. I think that, you know, when you get 400,000 pre-orders, uh, you know, he's going to be one of the largest, and he's already the most re- he's already the most respected car company in the world. He'll be the largest. Um, it's an inevitability. So I think Tesla's going to go 10x from here because um, you have autonomy, you have power. So I think this 10x, whole— 10x, you think it's potentially worth $300 billion? Sure, easily. Easily. Which would make it one of the top six or seven valued companies in Absolutely. the United States. Yeah, I mean, there's only one thing that stands in the way of that in my mind, which is is Elon Musk, you know, uh, still on planet Earth and not on Mars. You know, if Elon stays on planet Earth, uh, you know, yeah, in the next 10 years, it's easily going to be 10 times bigger. I mean, he, he has big ambition and he executes better than anybody. So, you know, his big ambition plus execute well. Man, that's just unstoppable. Plus, so, a generous capital markets. I mean, this has been going on for a long time. You know, time, if the market in if the market was a little bit more restricted, I mean, he operated the company in the middle of the biggest financial crisis in the history of humanity since the depression. I don't know if two thousand seven, yeah, two thousand seven was not as bad as the depression. So, you know, it's the second worst crisis we ever had in the United States, and 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 he survived it and he ran it. Then, great entrepreneurs know how to switch gears. Uh, great entrepreneurs put a lot of cash in the bank they, for a rainy they day. They pivot. They pivot, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, or they they just change the velocity, they change the scope. You know, you have to be able to understand, like, hey, it's big waves. We can surf a 50-foot wave. No, these are small waves. You, there are 10-foot waves. We're going to surf them a little differently. Different size surfboard. You know, you get the idea. Uh, pick the and I should, I, should, I should ask, you know, there was a controversial report that came out a couple of years ago when the stock Tesla was really on fire. I think Morgan Stanley put it out saying that, um, we are starting to see indications, you know, with the power pack, the battery pack that they put out, that this company is not just liable to disrupt the entire automotive industry, but we think the utility grid. If everybody becomes kind of a, 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 a power source, every house on the block unto themselves with their power packs, you can really – you talk about cord cutting, which is something that you follow intensely in, in our circles, in media circles. Talk about grid cutting. 
Yeah, it's an inevitability. I mean, in fact, I think I think it was Los Angeles just ordered a bunch of packs from him. So what you're likely to see is places that um, have grid problems. In other words, they have brownouts, they have too much air conditioning going off and not enough power coming and they're switching to coal. Those places are going to buy on behalf of consumers um, battery packs, put them in places. And when I went to the Gigafactory, I saw some of the, I went to the tour in the opening uh, and I went on this like private VIP tour, which was kind of rad. And they showed us, I don't know if they showed it to everybody, but they showed us some really thick packs like um, that were very large, not for homes, but for corporations. So imagine like these towering packs that you'd put in the basement or on the roof of a building that could power you know, a hundred apartments for whatever number of hours uh, with air conditioning, whatever. And so that's the really interesting thing that I think could make it go supernova, which is, gosh, you know, he could have governments buying these. Then they're using solar during the day. They're using renewables. They're using clean gas, whatever it is. We have a lot of that clean natural gas here in the United States. We're not burning any coal anymore. We're not burning gasoline and diesel and all this other stuff. And hey, guess what? We're now charging up the battery. So when nighttime happens and it's hot in Arizona or Texas or Los Angeles or San Diego, your air conditioners run off batteries at night because there's no more sun. And when the sun comes up, we charge those batteries up. And yes, they're also making solar. There's this uh, rumor going around that's been in the press a bunch about these solar tiles. So they're going to make more attractive solar solutions for your roof. And so now you can imagine going to a Tesla store and it's called Tesla, right? Not Tesla Motors anymore. You go to a Tesla store and they say, great. Imagine they said, for $700 a month, we're going to give you two cars, uh, which you can, by the way, let other people use so you can make a little money back on them, solar, and a, a battery pack. And it's you know $10,000 down, and then we'll do everything else. So now I've taken care of energy at my house, transportation, uh, and... You know, I'm, I'm off the grid, and I can also rent my and car you have and make a little money. piece of the subscription economy, which, after all, we all love right Correct. now. You saw the Olive Garden unlimited pasta pass selling out. I, I know you, you cover high-concept things, but, you know, we here in the, in the heartland, we like the Olive Garden. <laughs> uh, those things sold out. There's a whole secondary market. This gets into another Uber theme, mega theme, mega trend right now in the sharing economy. If you can subscribe to something to— yeah the Apple experience or the way they have it right now with the, the lease arrangements on every phone that comes out and the replacement arrangements. I just want to get a sense for how excited you are to kind of roll out the full panoply of Tesla products present and future in your, I imagine it's a palatial manse overlooking Russian Hill in the Bay Area. Um, I moved a little uh, south of the city. It's a, it's mini palatial. I've done well. Um, I'm not a, I'm not afraid to say it. Uh, <laughs> and I've got three cars a there. A mansion in Atherton, shall we say? Not Tiburon. quite. Not quite. Not quite. No, no, no Tiburon, no Atherton. That's I don't know what I'm talking about, Jason, because I can't yes. even afford to visit San I got, Francisco listen, anymore, man. You know, I stayed at the uh, YMCA, and now that's booked. I've I've been very lucky in life. The first 30 years of my life really sucked. I was, you know, taking the R train. I was living in squalor. No heat on the weekends. I was broke. I was negative at many times in my life. And uh, grew up in Brooklyn. My mom's a nurse. My dad's a bartender. My dad. Yeah, loves my dad's a nurse. I do want to, you know, I, I haven't even really gotten to the wealth thing, and it's not yeah. very germane to this conversation. But I always said that when I, when I, and if I become wealthy, I'm going to put three or four. Um, bounce sheets in the dryer. That's kind of indulgent to me. You know what even feels indulgent right now? Two any tea bags? Car with two tea bags? Two tea bags, yeah. Any car Crazy. with a Bluetooth connection feels <laughs> indulgent. You could put me in the 2006 Volkswagen, uh, you know, TDA or not. We are talking to angel investor Jason Kalkanis, serial entrepreneur. Yep. He sold weblogs to AOL back in 2005. He was an early investor in Uber. He is a Tesla maniac. He, you buy, what, at least five Apple products a year? Uh, I, I have a rule. I buy every product they release in the first week they release it. Well, tell me about Inside.com. We were talking about it yeah. off air a little bit. This is this is relevant to my experience. When I came to New York as a journalist in the year 2000, I worked for Smart Money. It was the sure. magazine of the Wall Street Journal. And SmartMoney.com had grand designs of an IPO and this enormous space in Chelsea called the Star at Lehigh Building, which was, I think, one of two buildings in the entire city 
that had uh, train tracks going right into it. It was like a turn of the century or 1920s. It was the largest press. largest footprint of a building, I believe, in, not you know in uh, in Manhattan. It was. Yeah, and so they moved us there from yeah. Midtown, from from Hell's Kitchen. And it, it was, was a, it was a nice five long blocks to Eighth Avenue. Uh, oh gosh, those were dreary awesome. days. But the, I bring it up because our neighbors were Inside.com, and I think yeah. Seth Seth Newkin was a wonderful byline. You may have seen him in yeah. the. In Vanity Fair, or he's now a, a professor at MIT, and those were kind of the salad days. And and then we heard a story that it was Mr. Brill from Brill's Content, just yep. in between a double header, I think at Shea Stadium, just showed up and said, "I'm pulling the plug on this thing." So, yep. how did you encounter Inside.com 15 years after the fact and resuscitate it? What is it? What's the backstory? Tell us. Well, I've always wanted to own the domain name, and I spent a long time pursuing it through a couple of different owners. I was able to acquire it two years ago. And I still love the media business. Obviously, I was in the print magazine business. Then I went into, after the print magazine business, I went to the blog business. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried to do an app. I failed miserably, along with every other news app. Uh, Consumers just didn't want a new dedicated news app. Um, but something really interesting happened. We got hundreds of thousands of people to download our app over the last couple of years, two years or so, and a lot of them gave us their email addresses, and then one, less than 1% of them would use the app every day. So we'd have these like really demoralizing days where you know 1,000 or 3,000 or 5,000 people would use the app, and we'd be like, where are the other 495,000 people? And it was like, oh, they forgot. There was just massive app fatigue. The, the average number of apps being installed on a phone today is zero every month. So people are not adding apps anymore. In fact, the big trend is people removing apps from their phone and deleting them, right? Cleaning up their phone. Right. So right. it's a really challenging thing. And then in getting people to install an app became really hard because you were up against clash of clans and people who make a lot of money off their app spending $5 to install an app on Facebook. And so there was no way to grow. People kept forgetting about us. And I got really frustrated and said, you know, I used to do email at Silicon Alley Reporter, my first magazine, and we would get tens of thousands of people and 50% or 40% would open it every day. Why can't we get those kind of numbers? And then it dawned on me, hey, schmuck, why don't you just try emailing everybody the top 10 news stories that they curated by your amazing team? We did it. 60% opened it. We added 10 more stories. We put 20 stories in there. We curated it perfectly. We did it twice a day. And we started to see we're getting five times the average open rate. You know, the average open rate is like barely 10% for email newsletters, and we're getting 50. Uh, so great. Why don't we see how many clicks we get? Oh, the clicks at the bottom are the same at the top. People are actually reading this. We asked people to do what's called net promoter score, and we saw, oh, when the net promoter score was 70 or 71, 72, 73. That's above an iPhone and below a Tesla. Net promoter score, if you don't know what it is, if you're into business, it's really cool to check out. It's when you get that question from Hertz or any product you use that says, how likely are you to recommend Hertz to one of your friends? One to 10. And the way that formula works is if somebody answers nine or 10, they're an advocate for your product. They're a promoter. If they answer below six, they're a detractor. And if they answer seven or eight, they're indifferent. So you take the total number of nines and tens and you subtract the one to sixes and you give zero to seven and eights because they're indifferent. But and when do they actually hand over a check if you're if you're resuscitating and resurrecting inside.com yeah. and hoping to not have to count on the pennies of advertising, which have replaced the dollars and $5 bills of, of, yep. of the print past, at what point are people going to pay for you? I'm not convinced that they necessarily pay for BuzzFeed stories as as indispensable as they might seem. I mean, I, I don't understand. Indispensable? The, You'll the, never believe what this cat ate for lunch is indispensable? I mean, part of the problem is that it's highly dispensable. You have a lot of clickbait going on. You have really low journalistic standards. It's kind of a disaster in the journalism business. And what we found is we took one of our newsletters, which at the time had uh, 12,000 subscribers, and we said, hey, we'd like you to pay $100 a year for this. And 900 people said yes. So roughly, you know, 7 or 8% voluntarily paid $100 a year, $10 a month. It's $100,000 a year we hit. And then we had a little bit of advertising in it, and we got another $100,000 a year in. So, okay, it's $200,000 a year, and it costs $100,000 a year to produce. So, okay, we got a 50% How does it cost $100,000 a year to produce? I mean, you have to you have to bring in warm bodies, journalists, whether yeah. they're gray beards sure. or people out of college that'll yeah. work for burritos and Red Bull. Basically, I mean, listen, if you are hiring journalists in Silicon Valley in the tech business, 
uh, you know, I've seen really people who are just horrible writers who don't know where to put the comma and just don't know how to do fact checking or make phone calls, get paid close to $100,000. So, you know, or in New York City, you might have a little competition. But outside of those two cities, you know, the average journalist probably makes $40,000 a year. And I'm talking about somebody with a degree in journalism and someone right. with a graduate degree might make 60. So this idea that journalism is really expensive is not actually true. Journalism is not that expensive. What's very expensive is the accoutrement that people put around it. So if you look at the New York Times, the size of their building, the expense, the amount of middle managers, and the size of the people on the pension dole is just ginormous. So really the secret to making money in journalism and in any content is controlling costs. And I'm kind of an expert at that. So what we're doing is we're keeping it very light. If you pay a journalist 20 to 30 bucks an hour to cover a beat for 10 hours and they make 200, 300 bucks in a day, they're going to be pretty happy, uh, especially if it's a vertical they like. It probably takes them 10 hours to write a really good newsletter. Uh, you can imagine putting 10 hours into a story or just curating and telling people what happened in the news for the last 48 hours. You can do a pretty good job in 10 hours, right? So if you put two people on it, okay, uh, you know, you can really uh, make this work. And so we figured out how to make it work, and patronage is going to save the day. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to build you know, multi-billion dollar companies. The companies will be smaller, but I think I'm not going for size here. I'm going for quality. So we relaunched inside.com and we allow people to vote on what newsletter they want next. So we don't have to launch a newsletter until it hits 5,000 subscribers. So we just put up, hey, inside baseball, inside Brooklyn, inside virtual reality, inside- And you are, you are seeing a true willingness to pay enough to sustain a robust newsletter. Yeah. I mean, it's early days, so that's a caveat. I do think that we can generate a great salary for a journalist in any vertical. I think we'll be sitting here three years from now. If you put on your calendar, you and I can do another podcast in three years. I'll have 250 of these newsletters, and I could have you know, 250 journalists getting paid great salaries working on it, and I'll have 50 to 500,000 people subscribe to each, and 1% of them. Mm. 5,000 people maybe or 500 people paying 10 bucks a month to, you know, something like that. And hey, you know, it's small numbers, but I think if we have eight newsletters now, you know, we launch two or three a month, you know, and then we increase it to maybe launching six or seven a month, we'll have inside aviation, inside dentistry, you know, and inside Bitcoin and whatever the topic is of the moment. And then topics that will never go away. We'll have inside advertising, all those trade publications that have died and suffered, Ad Age, Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Billboard, and, and all the ones you've never heard about, you know. Jason, we were told for the longest time that people who are hyper-local and hyper-specialized were going to be protected by this. It's one big reason why I think the New York Times paid, what was it, like $400 million for About.com. Yep. It's ancient history, but they yep. substantially wrote down the value of that thing. It doesn't, it doesn't move the needle. Like, take it back to a company like the New York Times. You have very real costs if you want to get... Good reporting out of the Middle East. You have to pay for flak jackets, sure. uh, bodyguards yeah. from the airport. Um, you know all sorts of data dictation fees. This is this is very intensive. You can't automate get their, it. Uh, yeah, their their big issue has been their massive cost basis. So as they've lowered the costs, you know they've been able to get closer to this profitability, and then they've increased the number of subscribers. Wall Street Journal's doing great. So you had too many newspapers. No, wait, but hold on. They're yeah. not they're not doing great. All of them by and large, I mean the salvation for the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post is they were bought out by billionaires. Jeff Bezos is worth 60 billion dollars. He doesn't care. You know, if he doesn't really care immediately what Amazon does, he's not going to care about a 250 million dollar personal investment he made. And that's why someone like the New York Times is a real it's, it's and, and Gannett and Tribune Tronk right now. They're still publicly exposed. They have to hang their embarrassing laundry quarterly and say that yeah. look, we're we're still sucking wind. And none of these investments in digital, I'm just convinced, you could just keep throwing money at digital. And unless you come up with the next Yelp or, or diversion like a BuzzFeed, it's not going to move a needle for a legacy journalism company with enormous fixed and variable It's costs. not going to solve how bloated they became. But if they can keep getting skinnier, eventually the revenue will catch up. And if you think about how much of every dollar they spend on editorial versus marketing, real estate, overhead, pension, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be 10, 20, 30, 40 cents on the dollar probably goes to the actual product. There's too much overhead. And what we've done is we said, hey, listen, at Inside, we're just going to have, we're going to deliver stuff by email. 
If you deliver it by email, that means I can spend 95 cents of every dollar on a journalist, five cents on the overhead, get scale, do it across 250 newsletters, and it will work. Now, will it become as big as the Wall Street Journal? No. Could it become as influential? Yes. If I have 250 journalists, I would be one of the top 10 publications, uh, you know, newspapers in the world. They don't have that many journalists. And so you have to take a little bit of humility with this. And the New York Times has been humbled and, and some of these big places have been humbled. But if they can lower their cost basis, they will get there. It's really an issue of overspending. And at the same time, the amount of revenue collapse. You remember, newspapers were making $80 billion a year at the peak. It collapsed down to like $20 billion because of Craigslist, because of Yahoo News first, and then because of Facebook and Google. Advertising is just not going to work well for these publications because they're up against Facebook and Google. But I think you'll agree the frustrating thing throughout is that we, we counted on this diversion or this canard of advertising to subsidize content making, yeah. which is a craft. And, and I know of very few examples of people, even now, Companies getting paid for the content specifically. I'm not talking about, you know, BuzzFeed getting paid for for, for branded content or for its brand studio or anything. Yep. I'm saying I really think your content is amazing. You put it behind a wall. I think that it, yep. I, I, address, I acknowledge that it costs money and I want to pay money for it. I mean, I think there's Netflix out there. There's HBO. But I don't know anyone else who's who's in, in journalism proper, I guess, Wait digital or legacy, who's not kind of spraying and praying right now. Wait for it. I mean, these people, uh, you know, are going to old people tend to do what they've always done. So, you know, these old stirs at these companies uh, are going to try to sell subscriptions. They're going to try to sell newsstand. They're going to try to sell advertising they're try to sell classifieds. This idea of doing patronage like Patreon does is very scary and it's very nascent. Uh, but that will save the day, I believe. If you get 1% to 5% of people to pay, consumers are starting to realize consumers are not stupid. They may seem stupid, but they're actually not. They're very sophisticated. And if you look at trust in media, it's going down. And because that trust is going down, a certain contingent of people is realizing, oh, if I want high quality content to exist in the world, I have to pay for it. And we saw this with music. It looked like music was going to be, you know, everybody was going to steal MP3s. And now you don't see people stealing MP3s because no, the I music stream industry. Spotify everywhere, right? I, right. I, I, and don't, I don't buy music. I, I kind of borrow it and I take for granted. For $10 that a month, you do that. And by the way, for $10 a month, the majority of people would buy one album or less. And now for $10 a month, you're getting $120 from people and they used to spend $15 a year, there's a whole group of people who are looking at that bounty of Spotify and Apple Music and saying, you know, which Spotify is now at 40 million members, this is an incredible deal. And Netflix, the same thing. So people are not stupid. They realize that they have to pay if they want to see things in the world. And all of these little, you know, experiments, whether it's Patreon or ProPublica or Inside or different people using patronage, it is going to add a zero and then it's going to add another zero. So we got when we started, we we're like, oh, you know, what do you see as an angel investor that gives you the ability to have this amazing clairvoyance? I'll give you my biggest trick. I imagine how much revenue the company would have, and then I add a zero, then I add another zero, then I add another zero. And I just think in my mind, okay, this company's doing a million dollars a year. Can I conceive of it going 10x? Of course, anything can go 10x. Can I conceive of it going another 10x from there? Yes, somebody's got to have a great idea that goes 10x. Can it go 10x from there? Maybe. I don't know. The list of ideas that makes it go 10x from there could or could not exist in the world. But sure, I'll take a leap of faith. And if you take that leap of faith, that patronage can go from people making five to 20000 a month, which is what people are doing on patronage right now, voluntary donations. Okay, could that reach 50000 to 100000 a month? Why not? That's only 10,000 people paying $5 a month. Why not? Or 10,000 people paying $10 may, a may, month. May, may I throw a wrench into this is when I look at this, and you know, it's a great point right now. My entire a la carte, uh, let's say broadly my data consumption budget, in, I look at it as a, as a continuum, as a cornucopia. I mean, the metaphors are tortured, right? I have my Spotify subscription. I have- 10 bucks. Um, my, my magazine subscriptions. What remains of my magazine subscriptions, my New online- Yorker subscriptions, everything else in there is kind of competing for my attention. Sure. And I try to mooch the Netflix subscription off my brother. Sure. A little sharing is Apple, okay. Apple TV upfront. What is still hogging the the life and the money out of my pockets is the money that I pay to the big, you know, to cable town every month. And yeah. that's something that I'd love to crumble into a skinny bundle. I'd love to break that $130 you will. Uh, very rigid thing into, you know, going out there and paying, there must be a Spotify for books or if a Scribd is going to do it or 
or you know maybe if I really like inside.com or you bring on a really great advertising or audio reporter I want to I want to sprinkle that wealth around but I feel right now it's still monopolized by the big um, you know fat tube content provider out there the cable companies here's the great thing when you think about patronage and you think about you know raising money for a publication or a podcast, you don't need everybody. You need 1% to 5% of the audience to participate. And if you can get any kind of a reasonable audience in what I'll call micro-journalism or micro-content or narrow content, you know, it doesn't take that much. So um, getting to 100,000 people consuming something and having 5% participate and pay at $10 a month you're now at $600,000 a year. You can build a lot of interesting things for $600 a year. $600,000 a year equals, you know, seven people at 75K plus some expenses. I mean, it's it's real money. And so I love the fact that people doubt this patronage thing. That's the opportunity for entrepreneurs and people bold enough to do it. People doubted Kickstarter. People doubted people would be able to raise money for movies or documentaries on those platforms or albums or uh, the electronics was the biggest one. Like, well, people will never pay in advance for electronics. But back to what Tesla did, P consumers are changing and people think consumers are, you know, static. They're actually dynamic. Mm -hmm. They learn and they adapt. And just like you're saying, I don't need this cable box anymore. I don't need to spend 120 bucks on my cable bill every month. Screw these guys. I'm going to cord connect. Well, you know what? There's a generation of people doing that. And so consumers change slowly and then they change violently. That's what we're seeing. It's a very slow change until it's a very violent change. And we'll see that in journalism. It's going to be a slow change and then it's just going to violently, boom, everybody's going to just be patronage. Everybody's, you can have all these journalists who have their own newsletters or are independent. They make enough money off of donations to write about what they want without an editor. That's what I believe is going to happen. And inside.com is just my way of facilitating it and accelerating it. If I can accelerate it, that's the change I want to see in the world, right? That's why I'm running the company. I'm not doing it to make money. I've got enough money through angel investing. What I like to do is change the world in some meaningful way. I think journalism needs to be saved. And I think it will be saved by being able to pay journalists a great salary and not have any pressure on them when they hit the publish key for them to worry about traffic. I don't want journalists like they do a Gawker, rest in peace. Um, rest in peace, Gawker. Rest in peace, poor one, Gawker. Poor one for my homies. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, Who could have seen that coming, by the way? Hulk Hogan, uh, Nick Denton. I never needed to see Hulk Hogan. Look, I left Hulk Hogan Nick kind of WrestleMania it. 1986. I did not need to see his rear end, and I did not need to hear about this unholy alliance between him and the PayPal mafia to bring down Gawker, which I read religiously. The world is crazy, Jason. You read it religiously, but the... I would say the 10 worst moments they ever had, you would have never participated in the writing or publishing of those stories. Nick Denton pushed the envelope. He knew he was pushing the envelope. He predicted his own demise many times and says, we're going to be sued out of existence at some point. He said that over and over again. He told everybody, <laughs> this is how we're going to die. And you know what? He got his wish. I mean, he pushed the envelope. He did not need to out the media executive that he did with a gay prostitute who was shaking but him down. But that wasn't what brought him down, amazingly. But you know what? This I actually harmless... think, I think that was the one. I'll tell you why. Even though that wasn't the one that caught him up in the lawsuit, I believe that was the one where he lost all the sympathy. That's true. I would I would say that. And I was kind of apoplectic. It's not a public figure. And as a as a, as a a gay man himself, I believe, I, I was amazed that he kind of greenlit that and then quickly tried to walk it back several days after that. And if anything, yeah. I noticed he had distance himself from the editorial operations. Yeah, I mean, listen, they push the envelope. And when you say Gawker, um, you're not talking about one thing. You're talking about hundred over 100,000 posts over a decade with many different editors-in-chief. And he let them do whatever they wanted. His greatest strength and weakness was trusting his staff to do whatever they want and pushing them to push the envelope. If you push a bunch of people without experience but who are talented to push the envelope, they're going to, and you're going to see great moments of journalism, great moments in content creation, and you're going to see some abhorrent moments where people do really stupid things because they're under pressure to get traffic. And that is what did them in. They, they, they killed their own company. If You can say what you want about Peter Thiel, and some of it's valid. You know, We don't want to see Peter take down a bunch of other companies. But the fact is, you know, um, if Gawker had not done a bunch of really stupid stories and not tried to ruin people's lives and not lost the faith of, you know, the larger audience with a lot of the bad stuff they did, I don't think 
um, you know, they would have put them in themselves in a position to get this judgment. Now, the people are going to say, oh, the judgment's going to be overturned. Well, it hasn't been. And until it is, you know, the fact that they were even able to get a judgment out of a Florida jury for such a large amount shows the world does not want what they were doing. At least the United States doesn't. Maybe some people in New York want to see sex tapes be stolen and printed or people pay for stolen iPhones. But, you know, America doesn't necessarily want this. And the jury said that and they did it to themselves. Now, I'm I'm very concerned about freedom of speech. And, you know, I, I don't think that Peter Thiel is the biggest threat to freedom of speech right now. I think it's the social justice warriors and the safe spaces and the fake culture wars and that kind of stuff. Those are the true, like, scary movements that you got to be careful about. Um, I don't think Peter Thiel's got the time or the energy to sue everybody. I think he just had a real personal vendetta against a fellow gay man and a gay writer who outed him and tried to ruin his life. Um, and I think, you know, if you, if you think about it, there's no perfect victims, and, you know, they both are claiming the victim card here. But the truth is, this all occurred... Because at a moment in time, I always like to look at what the essence is. And if you look at what the essence is here is a gay man who ran a publication had a gay writer out, a closeted gay man who was, I think, by all, you know, by, by what I know, and I know Peter personally, you know, casually, but personally, I think he was probably struggling a little bit with coming out. It was probably impacting his business because he probably had LPs in his hedge fund who maybe wouldn't give money to a gay man living in San Francisco, or he might have had international ones, say from the Middle East, who probably would not have wanted to give money to a gay man. And if a gay man goes to the Middle East to this day, they might get thrown off a building and murdered or put in jail or castrated. I mean, this is kind of the world we live in, sadly. And it was a moment in time where being gay was a career killer. You gotta remember, mm. at, the, at that time, Anderson Cooper, um, Tim Cook, Peter Thiel, these people were all in the closet. And they were in the closet, sadly, because society would have limited their options or it could have been life-threatening for them. It was dangerous to be gay at that time. Now it seems like, oh, why? what's the big deal? But at that time, it was really um, a violent act to out somebody, I think. It was just, and, it, and that's how they described it. It was like a very, the politics, and listen, I'm not a gay man and I, I can sympathize with what they went through. I don't know exactly what it's like to be outed, but... It seemed like it was a very violent, violating act to push people out of the closet who were not ready to come out. I know it's a very controversial topic in the gay community. And if they had all been straight, I don't think there's an issue. If they had all been gay and, you know, or all were gay and had an agreement that, hey, people come out under their own terms, I think it would have been fine too. So our entire perception of this issue is really fundamentally based upon a moment in time when tragically and sadly, gay men couldn't live out publicly without fear. Um, mm. And so I find the whole thing just tragic. I like Nick Denton. I'm friendly with him. They've skewered me. They've lied about me on their site. I'm a big boy. I can take it. I put myself out there. I, I'm confident in who I am. But I think Nick's tremendously talented. I think he made a mistake here. He made a lot of mistakes. But I think overall, he did a lot of innovative, good things too. So I'm it's hard for me to, you know, I'm not popping champagne corks about him, you know, having this happen. I'm also, you know, and I'm friends, I'm friendly with Peter. I don't know if we're friends. We don't hang out socially, really, but we have hung out. Well, I'm going to stick and to I, the line that yeah. Hulk Hogan's butt cheeks brought down Gawker. So I want to move to I like it. <laughs> anyway, I find it, I find it super fascinating. Like the media I need stuff. to sell podcasts, Jason. Come on. This is, I it's think not this a thought people, piece. I think I people wanna, like it. I, in a few minutes, <laughs> we have you. And, and by yeah. the way, you can extend this. I know you're a busy man. You are on a three-hour nah. delay. Uh, but that's nah, that's kind of the world busy. of podcasting. You do it left and right. I don't even know if the word podcasting applies anymore. I mean, all of public radio, all of audio is being disrupted. I was reading a Slate story yesterday, and there's now an option on the top where you can listen to the story. And Audible, which is owned by Amazon, is doing Love all Audible. these things. I do want to close maybe yes. with um, the news today that the NASDAQ hit another all-time high, which oh, if it? we were back in 2000, yeah, yeah and, and the NASDAQ was at... 5,000, we thought it was going to double. We thought the future was so bright. AOL, Netscape, Yahoo, yeah. Yahoo, Yahoo. Okay, now the denouement and the ending for Yahoo is the company comes out today and reveals this uh, huge hack leak, huge hack, personal yeah. info from at least 500 million accounts. Now, this is 
a while after Verizon has agreed to kind of buy the company, take it take it out of its misery. Core wah, Yahoo wah. for about $5 billion, wah, wah. which is just a sliver, as you know, of what it was worth at the turn of the century. Talk to us about the cautionary tale of Yahoo. What could they have done? What could they have done to kind of spend some of the funny money, the market cap that they have to invest? It's like they completely, completely had their milkshake drunk by the likes of... Google, yep. eBay, they drank Amazon. it up. I mean, they drank how does it that, up. How does that happen? Um, I think if you don't have founders at the wheel who are passionately pursuing a clear vision, um, you have problems. And David Philo and Jerry Yang had a vision for it as a directory and then providing services to people online. But they never really had a very specific mission, like index the world's data or connect the world's people. That's Google and Facebook, respectively. Um, and so, you know, you had this cycling of CEOs. And this was at a time when the belief was tech people who start companies cannot take them public. That's why Eric Schmidt became the CEO of Google. They thought Wall Street's never going to accept Larry Page. They're not going to accept um, Sergey Brin. And, and actually with Apple, you had the same sort of phenomenon, right? They had to bring in professional management. Now we've learned Professional management is great to have on the management team, but you want to have a visionary in the top slot if you want to continue to see the stock price go up, continue to see people win. The founders have what's called founder authority. They can say, this is our true North Star. This is where we're going. This is why we're going there. If you like it, great. If you don't, get off the ship because we're going there. And Yahoo never had founder authority. If you look at Terry Semmel's tenure, he predicted YouTube. He predicted video. He was going to do original programming like Netflix. Lloyd Brown was there. Braun was there doing original content. And they were very early, and they would have been very successful. He got booted. You had a rotating management team go in there. And then you had Marissa come in. And, you know, listen, Marissa was at Google during its ascension. And a lot of times people perceive uh, causation when there's correlation. There's no necessarily, and I don't mean to diminish Marissa's time at Google, but I think Google would have done just as well as better or slightly worse, but probably no different if Marissa was there or not. And so they put her in charge and she couldn't decide what the company would be. She said she was going to have focus. And what did she do? She pursued this maven strategy, mobile, um, video, uh, and millennials and like just everything. And it was like, okay, that's not one thing. Pursue one thing. And then she did 40 aqua hires or something like that, Tumblr. She wasn't a great manager of people. She was late to meetings with advertisers. There's bad optics on that. And I don't know that she's a natural leader. She's certainly not a founder. So I think you just had bad leadership executing poorly. Um, and when they they couldn't seem to stay focused on anything, you, you heard all this news that Yahoo was going to update all the apps, refresh everything. They started to. Things looked pretty good. I actually thought she was doing a pretty good job for the first 18 months. And then the second half of her tenure was just a total, complete disaster. They didn't release any product. Everybody left. You know, they were doing these huge, um, expensive buyouts as people left. Um, you and know. which is why I don't understand why Yahoo Core, the content company, is still acquiring journalists, is still acquiring heavy people. Because, con- because well, here's the thing. The, they made some mistakes, like Katie Couric and David Pogue. Like, Katie Couric, I think her show got canceled. I don't think that she was, like, going to draw some audience. I mean, she, Katie Couric is delightful, intelligent, I guess. She's a very good broadcaster. But I don't think she brings an audience with her, right? She might be great to have on television if you already have your audience, but she's not going to bring audience. And David Pogue was kind of like a laughing stock of the tech industry. People didn't like his reviews. That he didn't, he didn't really have credibility. So they overpay for like two like weird people to anchor their new content around. When they should have done is they should have systematically gone and hired the best podcasters and the best content people um, who were web natives, people who on the internet drew an audience. Like you have someone like Bill Simmons who was doing an exceptional job online for sports. You know, if you tried to get Bill Simmons involved and they tried to steal him or something, or they picked, you know, Peter Rojas and Ryan Block from Engadget, try to steal them. Um, my plan for Yahoo was take all the non-technical stuff, sell it off and do all the, you know, or just maintain it, but really focus on content and just hire 500 great journalists pay them really great salaries, you know, two or $300,000 a year, and make it a content company. Because when I was at AOL, we used to look at Yahoo Finance, Yahoo Sports, 
um, you know, and those were celebrity. the gold standards. I mean, Yahoo Finance to this day still. I mean, I was, I was while we're well, talking, and I'm news and celebrity, and you know, a lot of those subsections, and even fantasy sports. They had just like a lot of great anchors that drove tons of track, hundreds of millions of people. But it's really just, you know, bad management and a lack of uh, prioritization and a focus. And that's why it's so important to have great leadership companies. If you look at a company like Apple going full circle now versus Tesla, you know, Tesla, you have a visionary founder and they're just running the table on Apple. And Apple, you have Tim Cook, who's really kept it together. But the big thing that people are concerned about is, gosh, the iPhone 7 is incremental. The iWa- the Watch 2.0 is incremental. They haven't updated the MacBook Pro, the laptop, in five years. They haven't updated the, most of their computers in two or three years significantly. It's like, where's the new innovation? Where's the new products? They can't get the TV. They were supposed to be working on a physical TV. They can't get that out. There's no virtual reality offering. And I, I can't really use Apple Pay many places outside of what Whole Foods yeah. and... It's, you know, there's no big releases, right? They can't even, the, the cinema display, right? People love the Apple cinema display. They paid twice as much. It had a massive margin. They can't get a 4K monitor out the door, really? When you buy your Mac and you want to connect your Mac Pro or your laptop to a bigger monitor, they literally are telling you, go buy a 4K monitor from Asus or LG. Like, really? You can't make a Mac 4K monitor like the cinema display that everybody loved and overpaid for, it's kind of embarrassing. And, you know, I think VR is a very interesting bellwether for them. If you look at the VR AR space, augmented reality, virtual reality, it relies on hard a combination of hardware and apps, right? And it's based upon largely the smartphone innovation. In other words, the GPU, the graphical processing unit, the CPU, the battery life, the screens, everything that the smartphone has advanced so greatly in the last decade, that's the building blocks of the Oculus, the Samsung, the Sony, the HoloLens from Microsoft, the Google Cardboard, which physically uses a phone. There's five or six players now that are infinitely ahead of Apple on VR and AR. And when I say infinitely, I mean a year to three years, which is infinity in our industry. If it's dog years, right? You're t- <laughs> which so, is infinity in the tenderloin district, sir. I how, love, you know what, Jason? I got to tell you, I yeah. love the impatience in your voice. And uh, it tells me that even though, as you said, you've made all the money you needed to make, you sold your company to AOL in 2005, which was then rolled into, what, merged with HuffPo, now rolled into Yahoo Engadget and Verizon. And Autoblog Verizon, are still Verizon there. bought what was left of MCI yes. WorldCom. Could you have imagined, sir? And the NASDAQ is at an all-time high today. I love it. I love it. Listen, technology is the driving force in our lifetime. It's not starting. It's only beginning. I think if you look at what happened in the last 20 years, you know, since the commercialization of the Internet, which kind of started in 95, 96, you know, we're now exactly 20 years after that. And I think what we're seeing right now is essentially the first quarter. I think it's a hundred-year story. It's so whimsical, your voice. Yeah. It reminds me of taking these rides in Epcot Center, like tomorrow's world. It tomorrow's is I, world. like and the then, you stuff know, I'm seeing. Some some journalists would come over, like in the future we're gonna have virtual reality. You can move your finger on your TV screen and move icons around. Jason Calcanis, you yeah. sir are indeed a triple threat, and I'm so grateful <laughs> to you Thanks for joining for us me. from um, the rarefied Tenderloin District in stay San Francisco. Out of the te- my big tip, if you're coming to San Francisco, stay. The hell out of the Tenderloin. Well, like, somebody has to put me up somewhere because I can't afford a hotel room. Just anyway, do that's not an open go near the Tenderloin. <laughs> do not go near the Tenderloin. It's freaking dangerous. I really appreciate it, sir. That's Jason Calcanis, CEO of Inside.com, angel investor extraordinaire, a Silicon Valley triple threat. He was joining us from San Fran. Sir, you are a gentleman and a scholar. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. We are on NPR One. Marcus is interesting. iTunes, you can find us at FullDRadio.com. Stitcher, SoundCloud, ACAST, Grunter, and Thruster. Uh, they don't actually exist, but I just wanted to say that. Uh, with our five unique listeners, including my mom, we are changing the world. We pivot pre-money, post-money. Full disclosure, <laughs> disrupting your eardrums since 2014. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.